We are particularly talking about history through the eyes of a Christian believer. You mentioned Dark Age Man, which I believe is one of the new Marvel episodes that are coming out. Are you serious? No. Homoousius. In unison. Homoousius. That's the reason that I teach this, is I feel like we all should be aware of history because it informs the way we approach every day. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr., along with producer Wes. Make sure you check the link in our bio for our Ko-fi page. This is a great place to support the podcast, get more information and reference material, ask questions, make comments, and even chat with us. We're glad you're here. So anyway, that's uh, really all the awesome things that I've had to... Oh, are we recording? Oh, we are. Oh, okay. So y'all didn't hear any of that? Mm-mm. Okay, good. All right, anyway, I'm glad we're recording. I, you know, Next time, Wes, give me a little bit of heads up because I don't want anybody to hear the stuff that I was just talking about. So this is Frank. It's History Through the Eyes of Faith. I'm all, as always, Angie is here. Angie Ferris, say hello. Hello. She's here hello. because because of Angie, we have this podcast, and we are glad you've joined us. If you if you take a second, pause it. You when you pause it on any podcast platform, I think you pause it and you go listen to something else, and you bring back this episode. It'll be where you paused it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can pause this right now and go back and check the first and listen to the first hundred and six episodes, <laughs> and then come back to this one. Yes. But you really don't have to. I mean, you can listen to this one, see if it's something that you like. Um, we're, we're talking about history. We're talking about history from the perspective of a Christian believer. You might have gotten that in the intro thing. You might have. Um, and we're now around the 1400s, somewhere in there. Yeah, well, 13. Like, we're the still in the end century. of the 13th centuries, right? Because we left off with Thomas Aquinas, and he's in the late 13th century. And we're just talking about the impact that the Christian faith has on history and how we're all connected. And when we get to present day, there will be a... Well, a, I, 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 I would change it up just a little bit. Change it up. We're talking about history and how you see it through the lens of Christian faith, not just the impact that Christian faith is. Well, we're talking about yeah. Christian faith has influenced history, but it's more. We're talking about more than that. Yeah, I'm just saying. If you're listening to this episode, this this podcast for the first time, that's what you're getting into. However, go ahead. There's what? a lot of fun though. Too. There's a lot of fun. Like, like that's what I'm saying. That's what you're getting into. But we don't jump right into that. We like to talk about other stuff first. Um, and we've been, you know. We did get one review from all of our many listeners. No, hey, there's a thing on Spotify now. If you listen on Spotify or if, you go, if you're not listening on Spotify, go over and check it out. Where that, and it might be any platform, but there's a question and answer on every new episode. There's a place where they can send in questions and comments on the episode. Is that happening at all? Yes. So you can go back and look. No, for us? Yes. But it's mostly people we know, but they're doing it. Okay. It's still there. They're commenting. We have got at least four listeners oh, that we got are more than four. listening to this. Since we're talking about that, we do have, here's okay. what happened. All right. So we took a break last year, guys. Like we were off for several months. And what happened during, it was after we released episode 100, we went on a break for several months. Longer than. A hiatus. Anyway. What happened then was we picked up all these listeners and they went back and listened to all the episodes. So we essentially got all the episodes up in in numbers for us, okay, going up. But now all of those current listeners don't have a backload, right? So we need new listeners to go back and listen to the new ones too. Mm-hmm. So so share. I started my new job you know, last week. Yeah. And I... He said, what do you got going on this weekend? I said, well, I'm hosting a podcast. We, uh, my sister has a podcast. I host it, and we're recording on Sunday. Well, what is it? I shared with him what it was. He wrote it down. He pulled it up on his phone. He said, is this your logo? I'm like, yeah, that's it. He said, well, I walk every day. I'll listen to it. Cool. So 
Yeah, and I've shared it with so I've, I noticed we have picked up a few new listeners, but our episodes we also haven't regained everybody that was listening before the break. But mm. we have done nothing on social media since the break either. Dozens and of listeners. So so we're gonna uh, work on that too. There's several different options um, that we could talk about another time, but. We're building our catalog. It's okay. It's there. But what We've I was going to say stuff. is it went, when we get, like right now we're in the 1300s, late 1200s, early 1300s. When we get to, it, it, there's more things that happen in history, obviously. We have more data. We have more records than we do in the 500s and 700s and yeah, 800s, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it'll get more dense in content. And it has. We've been in the Middle Ages for a long time. Yes, but at some point, there will be a, there will be a, I don't know, I can't say volume, I can't say record. There will be data that is in the form of a audio podcast that future generations can listen to from, from us. Yes. It goes all the way. Right. So whenever I we mean, don't do this anymore. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Um, but our I, descendants. Our descendants. So... Someday our great grandkids are going to go. Oh, I had a great grandparent that had a podcast. Where is it? Isn't that crazy? That is weird. Because I can listen. We can. We share the same grandfather. We can listen to recordings of our grandfather singing. Oh, that's right. Yes. In the 30s. But I don't know if I ever have. I think I have. Like, there's, it's on YouTube. You can pull it up. Oh, wow. Cool. But it, it, but, our step uncle claims that's not him. Oh, is that the anyway? That's a side story. Yeah, claims that it's a recording of the of the that quartet. But he wasn't in it. But at he the wasn't time. in it at that time. Yeah. Even though it states that on the on the YouTube. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Um, but whatever. Um, but I got. I want to. And there's wanna, lots of video and, and audio evidence of our dad. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So it's a generational thing now. Yeah, someone said to me that I'm a third generation entertainer. Yeah. Which yeah. I am. I am too. You are third generation entertainer. <laughs> um, and Wes is a fourth generation entertainer. Yes. Um, but I want to bring this up for just a couple of minutes before we go into the content. Yeah. We talked uh, nine days ago. We were on the phone together on our, our father's birthday. Because I said that I had just found out that you had listened to Who Killed JFK podcast. Yes. <laughs> so if you're on any podcast platform, you can search Who Killed JFK. And there was a podcast that came out on November the what? What was the 60th anniversary? Oh, is it the 22nd? I think it is. It might be the know. 23rd. Yeah. Of November. Oh, it came out that day? Yeah. No, it came out before that. Because I'd listen anyway. We won't get into it. It came out last fall for sure. It came out in November. Yeah, Rob Reiner produced it. It's a podcast. It's very well done. I listened to it. I think it's eight episodes, eight or nine. I didn't know Angie was listening to it, and I didn't know that we shared an interest in that. Yeah, and uh, so I'm excited to talk about it. We don't talk about it very much right now, but the listeners can go listen to it if they want to. Um, not right now. But you can't whenever. Oh, you could. If you pause it, you come back, listen to this. It's very interesting. Um, but it's a, so many names and so many backstories. Yeah, you need to listen. I want to go back and listen to it again because I'm familiar with the story. I There wasn't a whole lot in there that I'd never heard before. But I'd heard it in pieces from lots of different places. So the way it was put together was amazing. The thing that I did not know, it might have been brought up in the movie by Oliver Stone, JFK. But at some point in my, in my consumption of the JFK assassination and conspiracy theories surrounding it, I discarded all of that movie, Oliver Stone's movie. I just thought... Yeah, because there was a lot in it that was... Made up. Was, uh, what do they call that? Artistic. License. Artistic yes. license. And yes. so I just kind of threw all of it out. Yeah. And thought, when I saw the movie in my early 20s, I was bought in 100%. Because I took away everything in that movie as to be true. Yeah. So then when I found out a lot of it was not true and just created to give you a certain feeling, I threw the whole thing out. 
And then I became of the mindset that Oswald was the lone gunman. And I read a book about Oswald and I read a book about the There's security so detail. Much out there, yeah. And I thought, okay, well, it makes sense. And I would say this about, well, I'm interrupting you. I'm sorry. I would say this about the Who Shot JFK. It seems that all of that so much out there has been read and consumed to put that together. Right. Some of it used and some of it not, but it, you get the feeling there's not a lot out there that they haven't a explored. A lot of research. Right. But what I did not know that is in the, in the podcast that I think was in the Oliver Stone film as well, and, but I take the podcast to be more true than the film, is Oswald was seen mere minutes before the assassination and mere minutes after the assassination like with, in the same place. Like when he's saying mere minutes, he's talking one, two, or three, yeah. not 10 or 12. That's why I use the word mere yeah. minutes. Yeah. I was just clarifying. <laughs> in the break room, yeah, having a Coke before and after. And there's only one set of stairway to get to the sixth floor. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just one piece. And of his the fingerprints myriad. were not on the weapon. Yeah, it's very, it's all very. So that right there makes it like, oh, something's up because, and so, but basically, I don't, anyway, I won't give you any more giveaway of. And of it's the, not something you. It's if Frank and I wanted to give it away, we couldn't give it away in five minutes. I mean, it is so. No, I could. I was about to. <laughs> I was about to summarize it. I couldn't because it's just too layered. I just I couldn't tell, but you know me. Well, all I was going to say is that that their viewpoint, or one of the one of the main points of their uh, analysis of all the data, is that he was exactly what he said he was. He was a patsy, and he was set yes, up. Yes. And part of part of the evidence of him being set up was that he was in that building and didn't know why until it was too late. Yeah. And now I got to get out of here. Yeah, and I thought, anyway, well, we could get going on that. That's yeah. bringing up another thing that I didn't know. But I don't know if you remember, but when we found out that we were both listening to it, the thing that struck me the most about that podcast when I first started listening to it. Was, I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm you It was blatantly obvious. It's a, it's a professional podcast. I mean, Rob Reiner is the entertainment guru, right? Okay. But it was blatantly obvious they were not in the same room. They weren't actually, the people doing the podcast are not actually having a conversation with each other. Right. They're using a script and doing the whole thing. And it just made me feel good about what we do here, that we sit here and talk. And this is like legit. Yeah. And like Frank really hasn't heard this material before I bring it up. And he's having an honest reaction to it. And we're having. Yeah, well, yeah. I, 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 I get what you're saying, and it is probably obvious. It didn't strike me as that when I first listened to it. Like, it didn't distract me from it. I thought it was weird when he would say, and so, Dad, would you mind reading that for me? I thought that was weird. Don't yeah. Just... Or, he'd say, or she'd say, so tell me about this, Rob. And I'm like, you said that days or weeks or months before he ever told you about it. Like, you know, but anyway, that's just me. I'm not, it's an awesome podcast. It's like I said, I want to go back and listen to the whole thing again because I know that I will catch different things that I didn't catch before. Well, and it was one of the few, and I don't like listening to podcasts that I have to wait a week for the next episode. Yeah, I didn't. You didn't? When I just, That's why I know it came out before Thanksgiving week because when I discovered it was the week before Thanksgiving, like in those days between, I don't remember what day it dropped, if it dropped on Wednesdays or Sunday or whatever. But I think there were three already out, and I heard about mm -hmm. it, and they said, and the new one's dropping today. And so I listened to those four, and then the holidays took over, and maybe I got the next one when it dropped, and I, I didn't get back to it until I could. They were all uh, out, and no, I finished I the whole thing. I did every episode the week it came out. Yeah, I couldn't. I was And too it busy. was frustrating because I wanted to get to the next one right away. Yeah. So I've been listening to, well, we're 13 minutes in. I love just killing time. No, come on. Let's stuff. go. Let's go. All right. I've got a couple more podcasts that I've listened to. I'll talk okay, about Okay, we'll come later. back. This will be the podcast about the podcast around yeah. the other stuff. We're making a podcast about other podcasts. That's another thing. And I'm just going <laughs> to, one, one second. When I hear ads, wherever you stream your podcasts, I always have to imitate the plural version of the word podcast. Podcasts. It's such a weird pronunciation. It is. It is. It is. And I like to hear how people say it. Wherever you get your you know podcast. what it reminds me of is when I say the plural of the word sect. 
You have to say sext. You can't say sect. sect. You have to say sext. 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 Podcasts. Podcasts. Always, wherever you stream your podcasts. It's, 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 it's what I think of every time somebody says it. Because you got to, English is so weird sometimes. <laughs> oh my gosh, I've got the best thing that goes with English is so weird. That's for another time. Okay, save it. English is so weird. Okay, so. We'll save that. Um, all right, so are we ready to jump in? Yeah. So who were we talking about? Thomas Aquinas. Thomas the son Aquinas. of the Duke of Aquino of Italy. <laughs> Yeah, and he wasn't um, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And then he ran away. And he away. became a Dominican monk. And then he left the Dominican well, monasticism and went to the University well, of Paris. Well, he might have still been a practicing monk and just decided to go to the University. And people made was. fun of him for being so slow in his speech and taking long pauses when he spoke, but became and, one of the one of the five most impactful theologians, Christian and non-Christian. Of history. Just impactful his, people in history, period. People in history. So, so you got Elvis, <laughs> Jesus, Thomas Aquinas. Augustine. Joe Rogan. <laughs> and Donald Trump. Those five. <laughs> You're just making up stuff. Okay, so what in particular were we? did he bring to the table that we talked about a lot in the last episode? Uh, well, we talked about... Um, Reason. There you go. That was the one word I was looking for. Okay. In That's a, it. That's enough. That's enough. Integrate. <laughs> That's enough. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> Integrate and reason and faith. And there were good things to be said about that and negative things to be said about that. So mm-hmm. last episode, we talked about an article from the Gospel Coalition about Thomas Aquinas. And then we talked about Francis Schaeffer's view of Qua- Thomas Aquinas. And so now we're going, I introduced this right toward the end, and we decided, oh, we don't have enough time. We're going to come back. Thomas Cahill wrote Mysteries of the Middle Ages. We used that book a lot in episode 100 just for different pieces of conversation. And so he's a very colorful writer, and he has a little section that ends up talking about Aquinas. So um, it also is kind of a, a look at the Middle Ages at the time. So I'm going to dive into that now, quoting Thomas Cahill in his book, Mysteries of the Middle Ages. The long Judeo-Christian history of God's interventions in human affairs, from the feeding of the chosen people in the parched Sinai desert. Do you know what he's talking about there? Like the exile, mm-hmm. Moses in the desert, the manna. the manna. So the long Judeo-Christian history of God's interventions in human affairs. So he's feeding the people the manna to the feeding of the baptized people of Europe with Corpus Christi, the flesh of God's son. And here I'm going to put a little pause in my Thomas Cahill to give a little explanation of that. This came from Aquinas, actually. He um, had a lot. We briefly touched this in some of the stuff that I brought last time. But he had a lot to say about communion, about the Lord's Supper, about the Eucharist, about what's called transubstantiation, where the body and blood of Christ, the wine and the bread actually become the body and blood of Christ, which is a still held belief in the Catholic tradition. And that comes from Aquinas. Okay, so that's what when when Cahill says here from the feeding of the chosen people in the parched Sinai Desert to the feeding of the baptized people of Europe with Corpus Christi, the flesh of God's Son, that's what he's referring to. Okay, right. I was going to say that. That's what I thought it meant, was yeah. the sharing of communion. Yeah, but not just not just like a Protestant idea of communion. There was this, from Aquinas comes the idea that the elements actually transform. Yeah. Suggested to the medieval mind, oh, I don't know that it comes from Aquinas, maybe the explanation comes from Aquinas since he's into the reason thing. Back to Cahill. All of that long history suggested to the medieval mind that reality was not pedestrian, but but fabulous. Not ordinary, not boring, not just walking down the side of the street, but fabulous. Fabulous. That is replete with incredible marvels. Medieval lives may have been, by our standards, prosaic and predictable. I told you this guy likes words. 
But medieval imagination, the lens through which medieval men and women viewed the world, gave its viewers a more lively and grand account of reality than anything. So there's this huge medieval imagination. There's this huge, I mean, that's one thing. If you live in the time of reason, you're not much into imagination and fantasy. And our our daughter loves to read um, fairy tales. And most the fairy tales written in a medieval time period, right? Like all of this huge imagination. So all along that time, there's this idea that the medieval mind that was, was not pedestrian but fabulous, okay? Nonetheless, the wave that emanated from Thomas Aquinas intellectualized Europe. The wave intellectualized, the, con- the subject is wave, the verb is intellectualized, Europe beyond any surge previously known, drawing the attention of all to the primacy of human reason in the struggle to come to terms with human experience. That's his summary sentence about Aquinas, okay? Bringing to the forefront the reason. Yeah. And more than any other time in history. It intellectualized Europe beyond any surge that had happened before. Okay. Okay? Not even God's revelation filtered through Scripture in the church could replace reason's role in tackling and settling questions since even, this is an interesting point, since even God's revelation must be approached, absorbed, and digested by human reason. So essentially it's raising the reason up above all of it because even the revelation has to be digested by the human reason. This is the point that Schaefer said was dangerous. Mm. And Cahill's making it right here. Just as the five senses are the mind's windows on the world, the individual mind's reasoning capacity must be for each one of us the final interpreter of the extraordinarily diverse and often confusing data that the senses supply us with. So anything we're taking in has to come from our reasoning. So the final interpreter is the reasoning. So now the reasoning has been moved above. This is what people said would happen. Mm -hmm. Such a philosophy must necessarily reduce the role of revelation and of church in the lives of those who subscribe to it. Thus, the 21st century. Yeah. For it is the human mind, really the 20th century, for it is the human mind and it alone that ultimately sits in judgment on the meanings of the scriptures and pronouncements of the church, as on all else. So he's making the point. Reason, quote, reason in a human being, reason Thomas, he's quoting Thomas now, is rather like God in the world. And here's... Cahill's explanation of what Thomas means when he says that. Just as it is God who animates the world and its myriad manifestations and enables them to function, so reason animates the human being and enables him to function. Reason, therefore, is what gives human beings their link to divinity. For it is the possession of reason that makes us most like God. Now, that was me quoting Cahill. I, I, I don't think that's accurate. I don't think it's completely inaccurate, but I don't think we raise reason up that high. Hmm. I've never thought about that. I mean, your ability to reason, he's saying your ability to, Aquinas is saying, Cahill is saying that Aquinas is saying that the ability to reason is 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 evidence of God on earth. It gives us, it's, it's our, it gives us our link to the divinity. It's the possession of reason that makes us most like God. But don't animals have reason? I, that's debatable. There could be a few who did, but as a whole, no. But how about compassion? Right. Compassion is another thing that I think makes us... But would compassion be reason, another form of reason? I don't think so, because that's not... You, okay. you feel compassion when there's no thinking involved. Mm. You know, so, okay. Anyway, we could get going on all that. This is turning into a philosophy podcast. Yeah. Though the new intellectualism necessarily, meaning the one that came from Aquinas, necessarily confined religion somewhat, it hardly eliminated it. Thomas, like all his colleagues, was an Orthodox believer. There you go. He might, for the sake of a particular disputation, take an atheistic or heretical position, but he never adopted such a position as his own. He, too, found reality fabulous and far too serious for intellectual clowning. And this is a quote. Three things are necessary, he wrote, 
for a human being's salvation, three things, to know what he ought to believe, to know what he ought to desire, and to know what he ought to do. Reasonable, yes, and respectful of rational knowledge above all else, but sober and focused on what truly mattered. But there, in that, it wasn't, yeah. According to Thomas, to know what he ought to believe, to know what he ought to desire, and to know what he ought to do. And I would say that Thomas says that reason's a part of all of that. Right. Right? Okay. So that was a little, that was how um, Thomas Cahill talked about Thomas Aquinas. So now we're going to jump over. Remember, we mentioned last um, episode, it says if Aquinas is, and his writings and works are in the middle of the room and we're walking around the room getting a different perspective. So we've, we've talked about how uh, biblical authority, Christian of the 21st century sees him. We've talked about how uh, Francis Schaeffer from the 20th century also, biblical authority sees him. Thomas Cahill, I think I'm pretty sure he's Catholic in his background, okay, and and writing in the 20th 20th century sees him. And then now we're going to go to the book Bruce Shelley wrote a book, Church History and Plain Language, which is like a textbook for evangelical Christendom from 20th centuries. We've we've used this book before, haven't we? Yeah, many times. So he, now he's going to talk about Aquinas, okay, and he says. To address controversies concerning doctrine, Thomas Aquinas was dispatched to Paris from Italy. Now, he's making like he was sent. I don't know. Maybe he was. Maybe the Dominicans said, you're really smart. Go over there to the Paris and work on this. And just for the listeners, because it throws me off a little bit, when she says Dominicans, that's not people from the Dominican Republic. <laughs> no. It's, it's Dominican monks. Yes. From St. Dominic. Yes. Yeah, I'm smart. Thomas Aquinas was a brilliant monk of noble birth, brilliant mind, tireless industry, and gentle disposition. He, too, had turned to Aristotle, but he had distinguished himself for his fidelity to the church. Thomas taught that reason fit with revelation. The result was his Summa Theologica, which means a summation of theological knowledge. That was his big work, Summa Theologica. The Summa has in view the whole universe. Thomas says at the beginning, quote, in a sacred doctrine of theology, all things are treated from the standpoint of God, and the content of theology is in part God himself and in part other beings in as far as they are ordained unto God, end quote. Aquinas made a clear distinction. I think the listeners need to know that you made a face after that. <laughs> I did, because I'm not sure I understood what that meant, but that's what Thomas said. Um. Aquinas made a clear distinction between philosophy and theology, reason and revelation, but there is no contradiction between the two. Both are fountains of knowledge. Both come from the same God. The two differ in their methods of searching after truth. Reason is based upon the visible creation and can reach ideas that deal with the vestibule of faith. Revelation looks to God as he is in himself and so is superior to reason both in its certainty and in its subject matter. And he's talking about the view from Aquinas. Okay. That revelation looks to God and is superior to reason. That's what he's saying Aquinas okay. says. Yep. Reason, for example, can prove God's existence, except in Aristotle's principle, every effect has a cause, every cause a prior cause, and so on, back forth, back all the way to the first cause. So he's saying reason can prove that God exists if you accept that Aristotle's principle that every effect has a cause. So for some reason we had to get here, right? Thomas declared that he declared that reason back to the divine first cause, the creator. Okay? And that's still debated today, right? Man is a sinner and in need of special grace from God. Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice, has secured the reconciliation of man. Those who receive the benefits of Christ's work are justified, but the key, as in traditional Catholic teaching, lies in the way the benefits of Christ's work are applied. Now, remember, this is a Protestant perspective textbook, right? So, the man is a sinner in need of special grace. Jesus Christ, by sacrifice, has secured the reconciliation of man. Those who receive the benefits of Christ's work are justified. But the key in the traditional Catholic teaching lies in the way the benefits of Christ's work are applied. Christ won grace. The church imparts it. Okay. Aquinas taught that Christians need the constant infusion of cooperating grace, that's in quotes, 
whereby the Christian virtues above all, love, are stimulated in the soul. Assisted by this cooperating grace, a Christian can do works that please God and gain special merit in God's sight. This saving grace, said Aquinas, comes to men exclusively through the channel of divinely appointed sacraments placed in the keeping of the church, the visible organized Roman body led by the Pope. So grace is imparted through the sacraments of the church. Which is why, if you remember way back at the beginning when we started talking about Aquinas in the last episode, we said that he was so influential that the Catholic Church took his teachings as their own. Right. This is one of them. That you have to have the sacraments to imply, to, uh, to re- impart grace. Now, let me just say something right here because I think I mentioned in the last episode that I went back and listened to episodes 85, 86, 87. Mm-hmm. And somewhere, I think it was in 85... Um, 85 was very full of a lot of things that get played out over a long period of time. But we gave an overview of medieval life, and it came from a book that was a book about the Renaissance and Reformation, which, as we know, doesn't start until the 14th, 15th, 16th century, 15th, 16th century. So that overview is describing life at the end of the Middle Ages. And in that overview back in 85, when we read these things, we talked about how the sacraments were required for salvation. Mm -hmm. And that is a result of Aquinas, not preceding Aquinas. Even though we did it way back there, it is a description of the Middle Ages. So in episode 85, we were talking about this same time period. Sort of. We were laying all this ground. We were getting ready to talk about the Crusades, and so I was having to lay all this framework to get us in the mindset of the Crusades. But there were things in that description of the Middle Ages that occurred in 900, and there were other things that occurred in 1,000 or 11,000 or 1,200 or whatever. This piece about the sacraments comes from Aquinas, so that's at the end of the Middle Ages. Okay. Okay, or toward the latter part, all right? So... Once again, I'm going to read that. Christ won grace, the church imparts it. This saving grace, said Aquinas, comes to men exclusively through the channel of divinely appointed sacraments placed in the keeping of the church, the visible organized Roman body led by the Pope. So convinced was Aquinas of the divine sanction of the papacy that he insisted that submission to the Pope was necessary for salvation. Okay. Aquinas followed Peter Lombard, who had written the standard textbook for theology, in holding to the seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, the Lord's Supper, penance, extreme unction, marriage, and ordination. And we talked about all those way back then. I don't remember the seven sacraments. So we'll say them again. Baptism, confirmation, the Lord's Supper. Now, if you don't know what confirmation is, that's when baptism... happens at infancy in the Catholic tradition, in this tradition from Aquinas, and was happening at infancy in the Middle Ages, even before Aquinas. Confirmation is when the um, confirmant, the, the young person, is able to take a statement of faith themselves, okay? The Lord's Supper is communion, which is not available to you until after you've been confirmed. It has to be done on the regular Penance are acts that you do for cleansing of sin or forgiveness of sin that's assigned to you by the priest to whom you confess. Extreme unction is the last rites at death. Marriage, joining of man and woman, and ordination going into the uh, priesthood. Okay. So those are just seven sacraments, but all not required. Well, it wouldn't make sense. The same people that are getting married or can't be the same people that are getting ordained, right? right and right. so I don't know the specific teaching on everybody has to be married or or ordained, if that's a case or not. I don't know. But I know baptism, confirmation, the Lord's Supper, penance, and extreme unction would all be necessary. Okay? Right. Um. So... There is nothing new in this. It has been said many times before, but Thomas set the traditional teachings of the church in a grand, almost cosmic framework. Like the Gothic cathedral, his system aimed at a perfect harmony between the aspirations of man and the light of God's truth. It provided the papal monarchy an impressive supernatural view 
of this world and the next. So that's the last of our information to bring to the table on Thomas Aquinas. So do you think you've got an idea of why he was one of the most influential thinkers in history? I do, because, um, well, instrumental thinkers, I also see him as a pivotal, pivotal in the Christian faith. Yeah. More than and I, but well, reason I, on its own right. is right. And Christian, I, non-Christian. What we haven't completely laid out yet because we're not completely there in history, although we've laid all the foundation stones and we've started building the structure, and I think you can tell what it's going to be. I think if somebody's paying attention, they can see. But what happens in the teaching of the Catholic Church and then how... That is responded to, that leads to the Renaissance and the Reformation, that leads to the Enlightenment, that leads to uh, modern thinking, that leads to the events of the 20th century, that leads us to where we are now. This sets the stage for all of that. This introduction of reason into that Mm -hmm. court and into that world sets the stage for all of that. And I think where we sit right now, there's a tendency to separate Christian faith from history. Oh, yeah, definitely. But that is, as I hope we're seeing, that is not true. Okay? That is not, it has shaped history. Because it's, it completely shaped, and, and we started touching on this when we are talking about Glenn Scribner and the air we breathe, right? Remember that? Go get that book if you really want to kind of do a, an easy dive into this. I've since discovered two or three more source, sources that are a much deeper dive. And they will be coming to the podcast because they're really cool. But this idea that Christian, the Christian worldview shaped Western civilization. And you don't have to look around a lot to see how Western civilization has shaped our current global worldview, our yeah. global economy, okay? And that is not poo-poo in what's happening in China or Asia or any of the, you know, or India or Antarctica or South America or Native Americans or any of those things. But the predominant worldview that the, particularly the economy is functioning under is a Western civilization worldview, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. So that's why, anyway, it's just very interesting. So that was Thomas Aquinas. You got any... Thoughts? No, I don't have any thoughts other than I don't have the reasoning. I have the thought. <laughs> yeah, you do. You got some. No, but I haven't thought of that before. I didn't really know. I mean, I would hear people quote Thomas Aquinas or say Thomas Aquinas, or I didn't really. I don't know if I could have told anybody who he was until this episode. Yeah. Last two episodes. Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But a theologian. Yes. A theologian who influenced. The way we think, you know, even beyond theology, you know, he would get studied in all schools because it was really the beginning of the melding, which led to the separation of reasoning and and theology, which is why Schaefer says. Yeah, he's part of the problem. Yeah, which I don't know. Anyway, something to think about. And we want to put the things to think about out there for you guys. So now we're going to take a little turn, not a big one, but we're going to, uh, we're, we're trying to finish off the 13th century. So Thomas Aquinas is this figure toward the end of the 13th century. There's a lot that happened in the 13th century. So the next dude we're going to talk about, you've probably heard of him. If you know, he's a real dude. His name is Marco Polo. Marco. Polo. Marco. <laughs> is that all we know? Did you know he was a real guy? I think I did. Okay, so here we go with him. I'm going to get started. In 1260, two brothers, Niccolo and Mafio Polo. Niccolo and Mafio. Niccolo and Mafio? Mm-hmm. Kind of like Nicholas and something else. Mafia, but it's Mafio. Traveled from their native Venice. Now, where's Venice? Italy. To Constantinople, which is where? Turkey. Now, today, Turkey, right? Or Anatolia or whatever. But Constantinople was the capital of what at this time? Of the uh, something empire. The uh, Constantine Empire. 
the Byzantine Empire. Byzantine Empire. The Eastern Roman mm-hmm. Empire. What was left of the Roman Empire, right? Okay. So these two brothers, Niccolo... No, and... it was actually right of the Roman Empire. <sighs> Nicol- if you're looking at a map. Yes. Niccolo... No, it was the Roman Empire. But it was to the right of what used to be the Roman Empire. Yeah, but this was still the Roman Empire. I know, I, that, I just thought it was a pretty good analogy. Whatever. It was, it's funny. Um, so they traveled from their native Venice to Constantinople. The Polo brothers were jewel merchants, and while in Constantinople, they decided to pursue opportunities farther east. They went first to Soldala, modern Sudak, or modern Sudan, I think that's supposed to say. I think that's a typo, not sure. Near Kaffa on the Black Sea, and then to the trading cities of Sarai and Bulgar on the Volga River, which is getting into the Russian area, what we call Russia now. Mm-hmm. All right. At that point, they might have returned home, except that a war broke out behind them and prevented them from retracing their steps. So they joined a caravan and continued east. They spent three years in the great Central Asia trading city of Bakara, where they received an invitation to join a diplomatic embassy going to the court of Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan? It was Genghis' grandson, who who was the one that made it into China and reorganized China and all that. Mm-hmm. They readily agreed and traveled by caravan to the Mongol court, where the great Khan received them and inquired about their land, rulers, and religion. Now, this is from a book called Traditions, and I didn't say this ahead of time, Traditions and Encounters, which is a textbook that's used in like high school and college courses on history. Okay, And we've used it before, I think, way back when. Kubla was especially interested in learning more about Roman Catholic Christianity, most likely because he ruled a multicultural empire and wished to maintain harmony among the cultural and religious groups inhabiting his realm. Thus, he asked the Polo brothers to return to Europe and request the Pope to send learned theologians who could serve as authoritative sources of information on Christian doctrine. They accepted the mission and returned to Italy in 1269 as envoys of the great Khan. Well, and I think I read in the book that you had when we were talking about Genghis about the impact that Christian faith had on the Mongols as far as how to uh, build a civilization that is, right. com- that is full of a lot of different faiths. Yeah, okay. So, and another source that I read talked about how he asked for like a hundred priests Okay, but he wasn't able to get anyway. We'll get to that part soon. However, the missionaries became alarmed at fighting along the route and they decided to abandon. No, wait, I'm, I skipped a paragraph. Here we go. So they go back to Italy in 1269 on this mission from the con to bring back priests and such. The Polo brothers were not able to satisfy the great con's desire for expertise in Christian doctrine. The Pope designated two missionaries to accompany the Polos, and the party set out in 1271 together with Niccolo's 17-year-old son, Marco Polo. Okay, another, another source said that he wanted 100 priests and some holy water or holy oil, and they were able to get the stuff from the Holy Land, but they only got two priests. And so now they're... Uh, Soon, however, the missionaries that were with them, the two priests, became alarmed at fighting along the route, and they decided to abandon the embassy and return to Europe. Thus, only the Polos completed the journey, arriving at the Mongol court of Shangdu in 1274, which is five years after they returned to Italy. Although they presented Kubla with presents and letters from the Pope rather than the requested missionaries, the great Khan received them warmly and welcomed them to his court. When they returned to China in 1271, 17-year-old Marco had accompanied them. Now, this is going to, it repeated that sentence because I'm going to a different part in the same book, okay? Okay. The great Khan took a special liking to Marco, who was a marvelous conversationalist and storyteller. Kubla allowed Marco to pursue his mercantile interest in China and also sent him on numerous diplomatic missions, partly because Marco regaled him with stories about the distant parts of his realm. After 17 years in China, the Polos decided to return to Venice and Kubla granted them permission to leave. 
They went back on the sea route by way of Sumatra, Ceylon, India, and Arabia, arriving in Venice in 1295. An historical accident has preserved the story of Marco Polo's travels. After his return from China, Marco was captured and made a prisoner of war during a conflict between his native Venice and its commercial rival Genoa. While imprisoned, Marco related tales of his travels to his fellow prisoners. One of them was a writer of romances, and he compiled the stories into a large volume that circulated rapidly throughout Europe. In spite of occasional exaggerations and tall tales, Marco's stories deeply influenced European readers. Marco always mentioned the textiles, spices, gems, and other goods he observed during his travels, and European merchants took note, eager to participate in the lucrative trade networks of Eurasia. The Polos were among the first Europeans to visit China, but they were not the last. In their wake came hundreds of others, mostly Italians. In most cases, their stories do not survive, but their travels helped to increase European participation in the larger economy of the Eastern Hemisphere. So, if you'd have asked me before I was preparing the first time I taught on Marco Polo, I knew something about him being a traveler, and I knew that his travels had influenced trade between Europe and China. I didn't realize that he went there as a 17-year-old and stayed for 17 years. There's stories about when he came back, people didn't believe it was him because he was a 17-year-old young they man were like, when he Wait left. A You're who? Marco? Yes. And they were like, yeah, Polo. Marco? <laughs> Polo. There we go. Wait, you're Marco. Polo. So, and how did his book get written? Did he, did you, did you catch that? How did his we, book get written? Yeah. How come his travels got written down? Because of Kublai Khan. No. Did you catch that in what I was saying? I did hear. There was there was a war, and he was taken as a prisoner of war. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Between Venice and Genoa, and it was while he was in prison, he was in prison with a guy who was a writer. Oh, and the writer wrote it down. And, yes, and then it became this book that's called. Uh, okay, coming to it, the travels of Marco Polo, the book of the marvels, marvels of the world. In English, commonly called The Travels of Marco Polo, it's a 13th century travelogue written down by Rusticello de Pisa from stories told by Italian explorer Marco Polo. Do you think they might be untrue? Like they're just fantastic stories? No, I think that over time, much of it has been, you know, it might be like more colorful, but not made up. Can I share with you that it wasn't too long ago that I was in, um, I guess it was a Target? Shopping. Uh-huh. And this has happened to me a couple of times where someone in the store will go, Marco, and then people will just yell out Polo. And so I was doing that with somebody in a stranger. Oh my gosh. I never knew who was calling it out, but they were wanting a response. That's funny. and it was a lot of fun. Finding each other. Okay. Mm. Marco Polo came from a family of merchants, and merchants were among the most avid readers of his stories. Marco himself most likely collaborated closely with Italian merchants during his years in China, yet his experiences also throw light on long-distance travel undertaken for political and diplomatic purposes, because Kublai Khan and the other Mongol rulers of China did not entirely trust their Chinese subjects, which we, we heard about there was a history with the Khans, the way they got to be so great was doing away with rivals. So you can mm. understand why they would not necessarily trust their subjects. So they regularly appointed foreigners to administrative posts. So it makes sense that Marco would be appointed to administrative posts. In his account of his travels, Marco reported that Kublai appointed him governor of the large trading city of Yangzhou. In addition, he represented Kublai Khan's interest on diplomatic missions to support himself in China. Then Marco supplemented his merchant mercantile ventures with various official duties assigned to him by his patron, the great Khan. Okay. And so then jumping over to back to Thomas Cahill's book, the mysteries of the middle ages, he has some stuff on Marco Polo too. And also on the Mongols, which I find interesting because we just covered Genghis Khan in a couple episodes and how, what that trade route they affected played into the whole middle ages. So Mr. Cahill says, despite the fact that medieval Christians were normally unable to distinguish one wave of Islam from another, 
The Muslims who came in contact with Europeans originated in different places. Arabia, Syria, Persia, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, and they had differing relationships to Islam. So from an European perspective, it would just be Muslim or Islam, but from an Islamic perspective, they were originating from different places and had different relationships. And we've talked about that some when we've talked about the caliphate splitting up and the Turks taking over. I think a lot of that was in episode 85 and 86 also. The Mongols, originally nomadic horsemen who rode from the north and west of China across the endless grasslands of the steppes, had by the, the mid-13th century conquered most of Asia from southern Russia to northern India, which we talked about, huge Mongolian empire. Such legendary cities as Baghdad, Kiev, Smarkand, and Peking fell to their ferocity. Even parts of Eastern Europe were absorbed into their orbit. Shamanistic animists, to begin with, that's the religion or mm. practice, Many Mongols became in time Buddhist Christians of a, and most especially Muslims as their conquests touched areas controlled by these more complex religious outlooks. The Mongols' establishment of an Asian ecumen that stretched from the Black Sea to the Sea of Japan made it possible for European traders to penetrate for the first time as far as Asia's Pacific coast. So it was their travels and that empire that had ways to pass through and the fact that they were traders that enabled them to pass to, to get all the way to the coast, which enabled the Polos to be able to do this. The memoirs of one such trader, the Book of Marvels by the Venetian jewel merchant Marco Polo, became a publishing sensation throughout Europe at the beginning of the 14th century. Marco had spent more than 20 years in the service of Kublai Khan, Mongol conqueror of China and descendant of Genghis Khan, the frightening founder of the Mongol Empire. His tales of the fabulous wealth of the Mongol rulers, the incredible immensity of their cities, the exquisite refinement of their courts dazzled his readers. They devoured his narrative as we might an account of interplanetary travel. Mm. That's a good analogy, I thought. Another world that we don't know anything about. To them, where Marco had been and what he had seen were as strange as the most fanciful fiction. If such people could exist, if such customs could thrive, surely anything was possible. Though contact with the Orient hardly changed the course of European civilization, it enlivened imagination and complicated social intercourse as least as much as the earlier contacts with Muslims had done. So it was as significant as the earlier contact with Muslims. Spices, pasta, paper, and of course, gunpowder all came to us from the Far East. So that's when you start seeing that stuff enter in. And such firing of the imagination helped set the scene for the amazing discovery of a previously unknown continent at the end of the 15th century. Now it's referring to what, we, what becomes called the New World, South America, North America. So that firing of the imagination helped set the scene for the discovery of that. More important than the ships, more basic than the technical knowledge were the travelers' tales, the rich imaginings, and a growing passion to penetrate the secrets of the universe. So the point was, why would you even bother building a ship that would cross the ocean if you didn't have this imagination? And right. so Marco Polo's story becomes a part of firing that imagination. Mm -hmm. It's a written document that can go amongst everybody. So I think I said... And he is around the time of Aquinas? After, yeah, a little after. I, uh, there's the map of his travels, pretty extensive. If you look at that, you're looking at... So he covered all of everything that had not been discovered yet. <laughs> I mean, he discovered. covered everything over that there. had been discovered. There's nothing that, that's, you know, to the right of Japan or to yes, the left. Yes, yes. Well, so, so our map is starting with Italy on the far western side of the map. So Europe and Africa is not even in that map. Italy's up in the top left corner. There's Venice. Uh -huh. And so he leaves Venice and goes down and through and all the, across Arabia and down through India no, no, that trip, he goes back up. Anyway, he ends up covering all of outlining through the steppes all the way over to the Pacific Ocean on the coast of China and Japan, down through all of, of China and around 
across the sea where Singapore and all of that is down in there over to India and then back up all along the coast of India back through what is now Iran up all the way back up to Italy. It's pretty crazy. I wonder what explorers thought about if you just went the other direction. Like we're going to learn all about that when we get to the age of discovery, which gets closer every day. And then there's some so interesting things about that, about why they didn't go the other direction and what happened and all that. Anyway, it's really cool. So that's a picture of his travels. Um, and we'll uh, put that up on our Instagram feed. And I also try to get it on Kofi. Kofi's like way behind. So anyway, that's I think another, we still have probably another 10, 15 minutes. That's another side story. Okay. Man, I'm just checking in for this episode yeah. because we had a little pause. Yeah, yeah. So because that's good, because the other thing I have to bring to the table on Marco Polo is an actual excerpt from his book. Oh, the Marvels. Yes. So this is from the chapter, uh, this would be 24, if I'm reading my no- Roman numerals correctly, called How the Great Khan Causeth the Bank Causeth the bark of trees made into something like paper to pass for money all, all over his country. The Kublai Khan did that first? I didn't pa- look up money? if he was first, but the way Marco's talking about it, I think it was a, a new deal. So this is in his voice, right? Written down by the other well, two. Well, it's going to be in your voice, I hope. Yeah, it's my voice, but you know what I mean. When I it's say from that, his now? It's an excerpt from his book. Okay. Now that I ha- here he- here we go, Marco. Now that I have told you in detail of the splendor of this city of the emperors, I shall proceed to tell you of the mint which he hath in the same city, in the which he hath in which he hath his money coined and struck, as I shall relate to you. And in doing so, I shall make manifest to you how it is that the great Lord may well be able to accomplish even much more than I have told you or I am going to tell you in this book. For tell it how I might, you never would be satisfied that I was keeping within truth and reason. The emperor's mint then is in this same city of Kambalak, and the way it is wrought is such that you might say he hath the secret of alchemy in perfection, and you would be right, for he makes his money after this fashion. He makes them take of the bark of a certain tree, in fact, the mulberry tree, the leaves of which are the food of the silkworms, these trees being so numerous that whole districts are full of them. What they take is a certain fine white base or skin, which lies between the wood of the tree and the thick outer bark, and this they make into something resembling sheets of paper, but black. Mm. When these sheets have been prepared, they are cut up into pieces of different sizes. The smallest of these sizes is worth a half tornasol. The next, a little larger, one tornasol. One, a little larger still, is worth half a silver groat of Venice. Another, a whole groat. Others yet, two groats, five groats, and ten groats. There is also a kind worth one benzent of gold, and others of three benzents, and so up to ten. All these pieces of paper are issued with as much solemnity and authority as if they were of pure gold or silver. And on every piece, a variety of officials whose duty it is have to write their names and to put their seals. And when all is prepared duly, the chief officer deputed by the Khan smears the seal entrusted to him with vermilion and impresses it on the paper so that the form of the seal remains printed upon it in red. The money is then authentic and Anyone forging it would be punished with death. And the con causes every year to be made such a vast quantity of this money, which costs him nothing, that it must equal in amount all the treasures in the world. With these pieces of paper made as I have described, he causes all payments on his own account to be made, and he makes them to pass current universally over all his kingdoms and provinces and territories and whithersoever his power and sovereignty extends. And nobody, however important he may think himself, dares to refuse them on pain of death. And indeed, everybody takes them readily. For wheresoever a person may go throughout the great Khan's dominions, he shall find these pieces of paper current and shall be able to transact all sales and purchases of goods by means of them just as well as if they were coins of pure gold. And all the while they are so light that ten benzins worth does not weigh one golden benzin. 
Furthermore, all merchants arriving from India or other countries and bringing with them gold or silver or gems and pearls are prohibited from selling to anyone but the emperor. He has 12 experts chosen for this business, men of shrewdness and experience in such affairs. These appraise the articles, and the emperor then pays a liberal price for them in those pieces of paper. The merchants accept his price readily, for in the first place, they would not get so good as a price from anybody else, and secondly, they are paid without any delay. And with this paper money, they can buy what they like anywhere over the empire, whilst it is also vastly lighter to carry than on their journeys. And it is truth that the merchants will several times in the year bring wares to the amount of 400,000 bezants, and the grandsire pays for all in that paper. So he buys such a quantity of those precious things every year that his treasure is endless, whilst all the time the money he pays away costs him nothing at all. Moreover, several times in the year proclamation is made through the city that anyone who may have gold or silver or gems or pearls by taking them to the mint shall get a handsome price for them. And the owners are glad to do this because they would find no other purchaser so give, large, give so large a price. Thus, the quantity they bring is in, in marvelous, though those who do not choose to do so may let it alone. Still, in this way, nearly all the valuables in the country come into the Khan's possession. When any of those pieces of paper are spoiled, not that they are so very easy, they are very flimsy either. The owner carries them to the mint, and by paying 3% on the value, he gets new pieces in exchange. And if He's any, getting some details here. And if any baron or anyone whosoever hath need of gold or silver or gems or pearls in order to make plate or girdles or the like, he goes to the mint and buys as much as he lists, paying in this paper money. Now you have heard the ways and means whereby the great Khan may have, and in fact has, more treasure than all the kings in the world, and you now know all about it and the reason why. We know a lot about it. But I just found that, I had a hard time finding an actual excerpt from the book. Mm -hmm. So when I found this one, I thought that was so interesting because he is explaining to people who have no or little concept of paper money how it works over there. Yeah. And it's very clear who is benefiting from this. Well, yeah, the guy that's making the money. But there's benefit too because my I don't have to keep my bars of gold or my pearls locked up on my property and worry about it. I just go trade them in for money. Like we are so used to that. That is so much the way we think we're not. The money itself is the value to us. Yeah. But in their place, it's the treasures that the money represents. Now, if something happens to your money, you got to pay 3% to get it replaced. I was doing a little little searching on the history of paper money. Uh Uh-huh. Um, well, I'll go back to uh, this. Is really this is talking about this the history of like banknotes or something that stood for money. So it, it goes back to uh, leather. Um, it was they were made out of leather. Have you found the paper part? Yeah. Well, it says here. In China, which is near where yeah, you're talking no, about. No, no, it is where we're talking about. That's China. During the Han Dynasty, promissory notes appeared in 118 BC and were made of leather. Rome may have used a durable, lightweight substance as a promissory notes in 57 AD, which had been found in London. However, Carthage was purported to have issued banknotes on parchment or leather before 146 BC. Hence, Carthage may be the oldest user of lightweight promissory notes. The first known banknote was developed was first developed in China during the Tang and Song dynasty, starting in the seventh century. Its roots were in merchant receipts of deposit during the Tang dynasty, six eighteen nine hundred seven, as merchants and wholesalers desired to avoid the heavy bulk of copper coinage in large commercial transactions. During the Yuan dynasty, Yuan dynasty from twelve seventy one. The 1368, which is now banknotes were adopted by the Mongol Empire. In Europe, the concept of banknotes was first introduced during the 13th century by travelers such as Marco Polo. There you go. With European banknotes appearing in 1661 in Sweden. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Anyway, that was just kind of cool. So the average European would not know about this, right? Would, wouldn't have experience with paper banknotes. Although right. they could have come to China from Carthage 
like there seemed to be some stuff going on back and forth there before the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah, but it wasn't necessarily paper. Yeah. Anyway, thought that was cool. That's Mr. Marco. Let's make some paper money. It's just, yeah. And yeah, see, I thought that was interesting too because there's certain officials that had to have their signature. What does our money have on it? It has a seal. It has mm-hmm. faces of people that are, mm-hmm. have been or are important and all that kind of stuff. I need some it's, paper money. Yeah. That right now. If you're listening, oh, I was, go ahead and pull up Kofi page. Okay, so. Me. Here's a here's a little here's a little interesting little thing to throw in for our end of the show time about money. I was watching a Graham Norton interview with the actress whose name I do not know, who was the second actress to play the queen in the series The Crown. Okay, I, I don't know her name right off the bat, but he was asking her like. You know, what was it? They were talking about it and, and he was like, did you keep anything? Or like, you know, they were talking about the sets and the furniture and the like, just all that stuff. And so while during the period that this actress was playing, like the period in history that she was covering of Elizabeth was when they issued a postage stamp with well, I guess it probably had it for years, but there was a postage stamp with Elizabeth's face on it. Mm-hmm. Was it? Or it might have been Olivia Coleman. Yes, Olivia Coleman. So it might have been com- commemorating like her jubilee or something. You know. Anyway, a postage stamp is issued with the Queen's face on it. Well, in the show, they made a postage stamp with Olivia Coleman's face on it. Oh, cool. So like on her desk is the thing with the postage stamp, and it's the Queen's face. She kept it. Oh, of course she did. The prop woman was like, she's like, oh, can I keep it? She's like, well, what are they going to do with it? Yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was pretty cool. That's really neat. So, yes. Folks, uh, you, you, oh, what was the thing that you were going to tell? We can tell it the next episode. About? You yelled it out at the beginning. You're like, oh, I got a story. And and you said something. And I said, I can't remember what we said. And I repeated it to go back and remember. Yeah, and I can't remember. I can't remember. I said, "Oh, I got a story about." Uh, I'm, well, we'll listen. We'll back go and back and it out. we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll bring it next time. Okay. All right. Thanks, well, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll Marco. talk to you next time. Polo. Marco. Polo. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe, or follow wherever you stream your podcasts. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link to our Kofi site in our bio. Thanks for listening.